The Little Written Podcast. Conversations with writers. This is the first part of a two-part interview with novelist Sophie Colombo. In this part, she discusses her award-winning debut novel, Rights, published in 2012. The second part will focus on her upcoming second novel, Point No Point. Here's the interview. My name's Sophie Colombo. Um, I'm a writer and an academic. Um, I published my first novel called Rights in 2012. And since then, I've been working on my second novel, which is a historical fiction called Point No Point. I'm also a teacher of English literature at Cardiff University. Great. Uh, So your first novel, Rights, you just mentioned there. Um, I'd like to start by discussing that because there's an awful lot to be said about that book. Um, Maybe you could just give us a brief summary of what it's about. (laughs) Well, it's actually easier said than done to summarise it because the point of rights is that there are various different versions of what happens. I can probably do best by um, uh, repeating the blurb that is uh, inside the front jacket, which is, Four teenagers make a pact to lose their virginity away from the watchful eyes of parents and priests. Fifteen years later, they reflect on the past and unravel how it all went so horribly wrong. And that's, you know, that that's pretty indisputable, actually, that as a, as a sort of um, summary of the plot. But once one moves beyond that, it's actually very difficult to say what happened and what didn't. Well, yes, there's an awful lot more going on than that brief uh, summary. So, I mean, it's a, you've got a novel there with multiple narrators, mm-hmm. multiple narratives, non-linear. What was your starting point for this book? Let's, let's start there with something straightforward. Well, in terms of a literary influence, once one has finished a novel, you go back and you realise there are all these sorts of different influences at play. And like a magpie, you've just gone around and you've taken this from here and that from there. But there was one literary influence that, before I started off, I always knew was really, really important for me and I wanted to do something that drew on it, that built on it. And that literary influence was a couple of novels by Julian Barnes called Talking It Over and Love Etc., which is the sequel. Um, And these are really, you know, Barnes is obviously incredibly, you know, critically acclaimed, but these are two novels in his oeuvre that have really not, I think, got enough attention or respect. Mm -hmm. Um, It's sort of uh, told from... Uh, multiple points of view but there are three main points of view it's a kind of love triangle and in both of these books these main three characters um, give their version of what happened between them and they um, these versions differ in some quite important respects so I was I read these books when you know I was probably in my late teens and they made a massive impact on me because the, the, the way that the reader had to kind of find the truth or try and locate or pinpoint the truth somewhere between the three accounts I just found it immensely interesting and it helped me to think you know really in quite an influential way about how I process information in my daily life and how I you know what kind of credence I give to different voices so I wanted to do something along those lines the inspiration for the actual story of rights came from an anecdote that somebody told me about losing their house keys and those house right. keys being discovered and getting them into trouble okay, when they were a teenager. That's interesting because that, that's a sort of detail that's buried a bit later on in the book because mm-hmm. that was one of the seeds that actually yeah. ended up creating. Yeah. Well, the premise of the lost keys 
this thing that happens, this teenage plot to do something daring, to do something self-discovering, and the kind of tragic error of leaving the keys leading to discovery, um, that was always the kernel of it. Mm. And once I started to think about that, certain kind of personalities uh, came into my head, um, occurred to me, whatever you want to call the process when suddenly something starts to crystallise. And those personalities, um, you know, gradually I sort of wove up this, wove this story around the Keys incident. And it was a story that took its setting from a setting that I was really quite familiar with as a teenager myself. Uh, I hasten to to add, Wright's is not autobiographical. No. I was, for one thing, not as cool as these teenagers. You know, when I was 14, I was probably, um, you know, sitting in my room uh, listening to Hanson and, um, <laughs> you know, writing my diary. Um, but the, the setting, the, the very Catholic Irish Manchester community was one that was very familiar to me. So that kind of superimposed itself on top of these, this incident, these personalities, and rights was born, really. Okay. So uh, there's so much to put out of that. Uh, you, as we said, there are multiple narratives in this book. You've got, f- I guess, four main narrators, which mm-hmm. is your four uh, teenage mm-hmm. voices, uh, Day, Rachel, Nick, and Lizzie. Now, the person who's designed the cover of this book, I think, has really done a pretty good job, because the cover, I just describe it, uh, is the word rights, with each letter picked out with different threads that make it up, which are all very tangled up in different colours. And that really does describe the book, because you've got these threads of different narratives weaved through, I assume very carefully, um, working out who's going to speak next, what, what information do you want to give at what point. I mean, it's such a complicated sort of structure... Um, how on earth do you go about planning that sort of slow, multiple narrative release of information? I'm glad you like the cover. Um, yeah, my publisher, Root, and the design firm called Golden, Leeds-based firm, uh, shout out to them because they did an absolutely beautiful job. Mm. I I would never have come up with that, but it's perfect. So, yeah, lots of love for the cover. Um, yeah, how did the structure come about? Well, it's pinched in an extent, you know, to an extent from Julian Barnes mm. because the the sort of short, crisp sections of almost interview style narration with the character's name kind of picked out so that you can follow what's going on and who's speaking. That's from Barnes. Um, the order of things. It was important that we started from the end. And right. that's sort of hard to describe unless you've got rights in front of you. Mm. But it was important to me that we were starting from a point where everybody was looking back. I want because I needed to build up in the reader's mind a question of what is it that happened. Yeah. And there's this slightly coquettish um, aspect to the narrative of refusing to divulge that mm. right until the middle. Yeah. But then almost once... exactly the halfway point, actually. Yeah. But once you've got to the middle and you think you know what happened, it turns out there was aftermath as well. So it's constantly, you know, kind of, I think, asking the reader to ascertain what is the thing that happened? What is the moment of betrayal, of um, consolidation, of change, you know, within these young people's lives? Okay. 
but I'm still imagining how you managed to put that together. Because I, mm. I mean, for example, if I was trying to structure something like that, I mm-hmm. think I'd have a big spreadsheet mm. with lots of colour coding, mm-hmm. and like this fact needs to come in here. Mm-hmm. Then might you might move this bit around? Okay, mm-hmm. I'll put that a little bit earlier. Was there lots of moving stuff around like that? And there was a good bit. Um, I started up. I mean, I wrote the first ten thousand words just as and how it came to me, and there was no real planning there. I had a sense of what was going to happen later on in the narrative. But it, it was it was very kind of free-flowing and just putting it there. Once I got further into it, I did need to have a kind of pictorial representation of what was going to happen. And it was, just a, it was just a sheet of A4 paper, really, or perhaps two of them taped together, I think, with a timeline. Hmm. Um, and I marked out in the sort of spaces where and when each character was going to kind of have an important reveal... Um, not to try and keep it at you know twenty five percent for each of the main four because actually yeah. there are eleven narrators, mm-hmm. um, but you know just to, so I could see and have a visual overview of where the important release of information came of who was the most dominant voice. Day and Rachel, by the way, uh, take the crown on that. Um, so yeah, I had a pictorial representation, but you know I don't I don't really I'm quite a messy writer. I don't really have one plan and way of working and stick to it some writers do they're very 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 disciplined I just kind of have to see what works and different things work at different points in the writing process for me sometimes I just need to sit down and write you know rubbish for as long as I can to see what you know kind of spews out from my brain Mm. sometimes it's very guided and methodical um, and then you end up with a draft and then you have to give it to somebody and uh, construct, take their constructive criticism and accept it or disown it. So that's a whole other stage. Uh, to what extent did those first 10,000 words that just came out uh, make it into the finished book as is? They're pretty similar, actually, mm-hmm. the first 10,000 words. Um, the, the revisions that came along later in the drafting process, the second, third draft, once I was working with the publisher, um, they all happen kind of, you know, in the the last two thirds of the book the honestly the um you know the setup the voices introducing themselves the personalities starting to take shape the um the dark kind of skirting around what is the secret what is this thing that happened that was all there from the start that was the first ten thousand words so okay um so one thing you i think you've achieved brilliantly with this is you managed to keep the ambiguity of what has happened and who is well guilty, if even guilty mm-hmm. is an appropriate word in this context. I think, by the way, we're probably going to have to give away a few more details <laughs> as, we, as we talk about this. But um, you managed to keep that ambiguity on an absolute knife edge, which, in my case at least, leads to certain passages where you think, oh, I've got to read this very, very carefully. Mm. because And there, there's the odd phrase here and there where you think, well, this one's slightly out of character for this person, therefore maybe this is particularly mm. important. So, yeah, so... How difficult was that to achieve? Are you trying to hit key phrases, key clues in certain places? Yes. This is one area where my academic background, my background as a critic and you know a reader and a critic of English literature, really, I think, was essential to what I was trying to do. Um, I'm a new historicist, which what that means in literary terms is that I take, among other things, I take a very sceptical attitude towards history, mm-hmm. towards the idea of what happened, the historical truth. Um, new historicists in their purest form believe there's no such thing as a history. All there is is an archive. There are just sources, mm. which are textual sources available to us. 
and depending on which ones we use and give credence to, which of course depends on our own political outlook and priorities, among other things, that shapes the kind of history that we put together. So you can probably see what I'm getting at. Um, I had, you know, readers and interviewers asking me when rights came up, so what actually did happen? Mm. And I just, I don't know how to answer that question except with a sort of sceptical look. (laughs) Because all we have are the accounts. All we have are these different versions. So what I intend it to act as is a kind of litmus test Mm -hmm. for the reader to place themselves and their understanding of the truth within and between these accounts. That what, that's what Julian Barnes's books did for me. Mm. And I think it's just an incredibly valuable thing to do as a reader. You know, so I was trying, to get back to your question slightly, to keep the balance on a knife edge, to keep it incredibly ambiguous. I did not want to make one side of the story more persuasive than others, to mm. have, you know, a truth and a sort of, you know, um, rival but less persuasive version. Did that require going back and slightly rebalancing oh, something yeah. or taking oh, yeah, definitely. out of one narrative? Yes, definitely. Because certain characters, uh, because, you know, I, I, I'm a subjective person. I have my own biases. So some characters ended up being a lot more persuasive, convincing, mm. appealing, whatever, than others. And I had, to, I had to challenge that and sort of take it apart one of the other big challenges you set yourself with this book, I guess, the fact that there are multiple voices and it's all first person, you're having to, as you said, 11 different narrators, you're having to have 11 distinct types of prose. Mm-hmm. And in, in terms of the children as well, you've got the additional complication there, I guess, about 29, 30, talking mm-hmm. about being 14 and what they did at that point. Mm-hmm. So that, that must have been extremely difficult to achieve as well, um... distinguishing the voices. I don't know. It probably was difficult thinking back to it. I probably had to do quite a lot of tweaking, but um, I have a very, I had and I have a very strong sense of these people. Um, I hate when people, when authors talk about, oh, the characters live, it's not really me, you know, the characters are more real than I am. I Mm. think that's a bit of guff, really. But they, they live very strongly in my head. So Day, for example, Damien, who's one of the main narrators... He was just there, and I knew exactly how he talked. And I had to kind of, you know, I'm not saying there wasn't any editing, I wasn't just channeling this sort of, you know, divine imaginative force. But it wasn't really difficult to come up with a distinctive sort of register for Mm. him. Probably with the minor characters it was a bit harder. I mean, the policewoman, Ellie, um, you know, she she didn't kind of live as strongly. She was there to perform a function, so Mm. I had a a bit more trouble with her. but no, that, that part of it was actually quite easy, having, having those different voices. So is it possible for you to go back, theoretically, and, and pick out where bits of different characters come from? Are there particular people? Not that they're <laughs> name anybody, but... Um, my official line is, and will always remain, that Wright's is, is not autobiographical at all. Um, but yeah, the way that I write, and I'm really interested in how it might be the way that other writers write also, is that I never, I never put a portrait of a person in my fiction Hmm. but throughout the you know having amassed acquaintance throughout my life certain personalities interest me as for want of a better way of putting it bearers of a certain kind of ideological weight they Hmm. um 
their personality, their tics, their quirks, things that they've said, things that they've done, come to mean important things for me. And, you know, rather like a magpie, I sort of go around and I pick these out and I sort of translate them into new characters. So um, certain people would probably recognise things. There was a hilarious moment with my parents where, um, you know, they, they, they were reading it and I think they were quite discomforted because they recognised certain details from... Mm-hmm my childhood Uh, and I had to reassure them and say look you are not (laughs) the parents in this which would be a terrible thing to say to anyone um so you know that it's it's a case of it's like you know it's like patchwork it's taking materials from life and working them into something new Hmm. I mean the reason I asked about that is because when when I read I don't generally have I think a particularly firm visual impression of the characters that I'm reading about Mm -hmm. whereas in this book I'm thinking about it the four main characters I have a very, very clear idea of what they look like in mm. my mind. And they're all actually based on people I know, <laughs> or perhaps characters from TV series yeah. has come in. Um, so there's something going on there that there's a much clearer visual impression of these characters than I would usually expect from a novel. That's quite nice. Um, yeah, I, I too have a visual image of them. There was some uh, discussion ages ago about kind of pitching rights as some sort of TV series, and it never really came to anything. But I always wonder if that would... Um, you know, if that, if that would be a good thing or not. Because in a way, I think it would shift so well to a visual medium. But in a way, I think maybe you're right, there's a certain projectability of these characters and people all have their own ideas of them. I'm not sure I'd want to box them off like that and mm. say, well, now this is the definitive Rachel, this is the definitive Nick, etc. So Day, we've talked about, mm-hmm. right? he opens the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... There's quite almost immediately some talk of a possible rape having happened. Mm-hmm. He is he's later on accused of of rape. Mm-hmm. I think it's an interesting decision to open the book with his point of view mm-hmm. because certainly when I was reading it, that immediately gives him a sort of weight mm-hmm. that is only very slowly diluted by the mm-hmm. fact that other characters come in later. Mm-hmm. Was that your intention? Well, first off, I had a first line in my mind, which was. When I, I'll probably get it wrong now. When I was 14, I did something really terrible. At least that's what some people tell me. Mm-hmm. And that first line was very, very emphatic in my mind and very insistent. And there was no one who could really say that except Day. Mm. But thinking about it in a slightly more nuanced way, this is partly a book about who we believe based on how articulate they are, mm. based on how persuasive their voice is and how well they know how to talk the talk. Mm. And one way of getting the reader to think about that, Day is always pushing himself forward. Mm. He's always pushing forward his version of events. And although he's incredibly irritating, certainly some readers he has a certain kind of fluency Mm. a certain kind of articulacy he's very eloquent indeed yeah and always has been so you know this is the adult day telling the story but when he was younger that was also one of his defining characteristics and so to be true to the characters it had to be him who was constantly trying to get the reader on side Mm. he starts the story he finishes it it would not have been true to character to have lizzie starting off the story. Now that doesn't mean that Lizzie's account is any less worthy of credence, but she's not as articulate, she's not as forceful, she's not as persistent with her narrative. So I wanted the reader to be 
thinking about that, to be finding day more persuasive. But as there's this metatextual focus on how far is belief determined by articulacy, hmm. to be constantly throwing that question back on themselves. Does that answer the question? I think so, yeah. I mean, with day, you're, you're, you're kind of pulling the reader's prejudices and biases in both directions because there's a, there's a class thing going on as well in this book oh, yeah. because he's from a more working class or not working class, in mm-hmm. fact, um, background with his, his father, I think, dead. Is that correct? Dead in some way, yes. Yeah, and his mother, um, not much of a mother not in many in ways. The, not in the picture. So how important was the class aspect to you? It was really important. Um, you know, there are ways in which all of these protagonists find themselves at some sort of disadvantage. Um, Day, because of his class. Rachel, because of her status as an outsider uh, in mm. terms of her nationality. The fact she's the late entrant. Nick is in many ways the most privileged of the lot, but there's just a sense in which he's not quite on the ball. He's not quite able to keep up with that rather savage kind of pecking order mm. that teenage friendship groups can rely on. Um, Lizzie is, you know, sort of privileged in terms of her, her beauty and the sort of value that gets conferred on that beauty within that pecking order. But there are other ways, as the story makes clear, in which she's at a massive disadvantage. Mm. So, yeah, I wanted it to be balanced again. I didn't want anybody to be so central and dominant within the narrative that it skewed it, that it took that that precarious balance away that we were discussing earlier. Hmm. The theme of the novel could be described as quite controversial. Mm-hmm. You've got underage sex, but more importantly, I guess, mm-hmm. it's sort of, I mean, correct me if I'm misinterpreting here, but it's sort of asking the question, what is rape? Mm-hmm. It's even quoting law, the law mm-hmm. at the reader, mm-hmm. and it's asking people to put themselves into the position of this person who has been accused may or may not be guilty depending on your interpretation mm-hmm. of this crime mm-hmm. were you concerned about that controversial aspect a little bit about another place that rights came from um i worked for a couple of years at the ministry of justice mm-hmm. um and i was involved in overseeing some of the legislation around sexual offenses oh, okay And that was a really fascinating and quite discomforting thing to do. I was left with an overwhelming impression that the law still leaves a space for eloquence and articulacy in a way that is problematic. Mm. One still ends up very much coming down to the notion of he said, she said... Um, who do you believe and how well someone can express themselves still kind of has a huge part to play in that so I took that professional interest and I started to think about an accusation of rape as a site where certain truths, certain kind of uncomfortable things could be revealed about what kind of account we privilege and why Mm. so for me this was not so much a novel about rape as it was about different people's truths and different people's voices Mm. and this is just a very sensitive politicised kind of way for that topic to get raised Um, now I was a little a little concerned that some people might think it was 
offensive, mm-hmm. that some people might find it an inappropriate subject matter. In general, the reviews were very, very kind. They didn't, you know, they, they one actually explicitly said, of course, this book does not challenge the premise that no means no. So I was delighted, you know, that, that I wasn't seen to be doing something that, um, you know, I would, I would find abhorrent in that respect. Um, having said that, I don't think I could write rights today. Okay, you mean because of your increased profile? Um, not so much that, no. Because I, I only say that because I know you've had, you have had some trouble on social media in relation to other things you've done. I saw you wrote an, an article about <laughs> women taking their husband's name and otherwise, and I think you got some, some trolling on that. So. Oh no, I've been very lucky really. Um, I mean, lots of women online face horrific abuse whenever they express any sort of opinion. Um, when I wrote this article about women taking their husband's names, which I you know, said was of course a free choice for everyone but historically it's quite problematic Mm. um there were a couple of half-hearted attempts to troll me they were quite sweet actually um (laughs) you know they were really trying but uh you know I, i found it quite amusing more than anything um but you know i really haven't had it as bad as some people no it's not the reason why i couldn't write it today i don't actually know what the art why i have this feeling but I'll try and talk it through. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not to do with any sense of an increased profile or a worry that I could get into trouble. I think I have a more uh, acute awareness of the politics of talking about sexual assault when you haven't been a victim right. of sexual assault. I don't think these days I would feel comfortable kind of putting this subject out there in quite the same way that I did because I would be thinking more about people who had actually suffered from this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Was I a horrible person to do so when I wrote it in 2011? No, I don't think so. But I was far less informed. Mm -hmm. So I was more comfortable, I think, maybe treating the subject as you know a crucible for my ideas to emerge than I would be now I think I'd feel a lot more uncomfortable with that I hope still that somebody who you know read it for the first time now wouldn't think oh this is a terrible thing how dare this person write this book because literature has to deal with difficult Mm. topics you know it, it has to that's sort of what it's for but I just get an inkling that I couldn't write it today. I sort of feel the people who would be offended by it probably wouldn't get through the whole book. <laughs> well, that's the other thing. I do hope that, you know, nobody would sort of read a synopsis or read the first few pages and go, and, you know, judge it on that. I do think if you if you give the thing a full reading, hopefully you'll see what I'm trying to do. And I think, you know, the fact that the reviews were extremely kind about it, I think, show that they did, they did actually get it. Mm. The other thing I wanted to talk about, and you mentioned it earlier, is the whole Catholicism aspect. Mm, yeah. So I also come from that background. Um, and there's a sort of running joke in our household that whenever Catholics are portrayed in the media, they're always either child abusers mm. or they've been driven mad by their <laughs> religious devotion. Um, so I just wanted to know what you what your goal was in, in the, the sort of Catholic elements of this book. Did you have any particular angle you wanted to get across? Did you want to explore it, or is it incidental? I was very interested in the idea of confession. Mm. Um, I grew up in a sort of Catholic community, Roman Catholic family, though I think we're all pretty lapsed now, actually. A Catholic school, 
Um, and I was I was rather rebellious from my teenage years, and I I decided I didn't think much of it. But I always found the idea of confession really really interesting. I quite enjoyed doing it. Mm. I quite liked walking out going, oh, I'm completely sinless, um, this is great, until, you know, I do the next thing wrong. Um, and as I got older, I started to think about the parallels between confession and, and therapy, mm-hmm. which, of course, is one of, you know, the driving... I'm watching the Sopranos at the moment, and I'm about 20 years behind the curve there. Mm. But, you know, therapy being one of the kind of principal fads or manias of our time... Mm-hmm. I was thinking, how different actually is that to confession? And that's where the character of Father Creevy came from, who mm-hmm. likes to reflect on these things and to kind of exercise a, a strange kind of benign, sinister surveillance over the kids and, what's, and what happened. Um, but it also feeds into the structure of the entire book because all the characters are, to an extent confessing to the reader the Mm. more I started thinking about this the more I started thinking confession is still just incredibly important to our culture or the culture my culture um you know half of half of print journalism and most of online journalism these days is confessional Mm -hmm. um objectivity is out it's passe uh today it's all about opinion it's all about me my life my thoughts the way that my experience my life experience has informed my uh, politics and, you know, what I think. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I suppose I just kind of took that theme of confession, which was Roman Catholic in nature when I was growing up, and applied it to a large number of other contexts. Mm. I think it is interesting, because I think this book does represent the experience of being brought up in a a Catholic environment in Britain better than most of what you see, because it's... It's not a massive deal. It has informed these kids' lives, mm-hmm. but it's not a big deal no. in many ways. And they stand at the back of the church and they're not all that you know, interested in what's going on mm-hmm. in, in their case. So in that respect, did you, did you feel you were kind of representing it in a more even-handed way than, than is often? Yeah, possibly. I mean, I think you're right that, um, you know, if there's a character in a screenplay or a script and it says, you know, Roman Catholic priest, then, you know, that it's it's very possible that there's going to be a, a child abuse storyline. So that's, um, you know, that sort of doesn't always... Well, it can get a bit samey, I suppose, mm. um, from a literary point of view. Um, yeah, I was, you know, I was trying to as with other things in the book, to show how these characters varied in the way that they related to their religious background and their religious community. As children, as teenagers, you're right, you know, they were sort of... It was neither here nor there to any of them except Rachel, who obviously mm-hmm. has strong feelings about the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but as they get older, they sort of cling to it, uh, resist it, uh, relate to it in, I think, quite important ways. So you won an award for this book. Yes. You were the great, the next great novelist back in 2012. Indeed. Yes. Um, how did that come about? Um, it was an Arts Council competition. Right. Um, and they teamed up with uh, publisher, Root Publishing, um, to do this, run this competition, do this search for next great novelist um, under 30 uh, which I now think is rather harsh, and I think they shouldn't have had the age limit, which may be to do with the fact that I'm now over 30. Well, um, you can't be the next great novelist twice anyway, surely. No, 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 no not for <laughs> my own sake, but just because there were probably some, you know, 
really talented 50-year-olds who would have loved to be the next great novelist. Um, but anyway, it was, you know, I'm very grateful for the, the competition. Um, and yeah, there was, I saw this advertised and um, I had 10,000 words or thereabouts. And so I entered it and I was lucky enough to win. So the, the prize was the publishing contract. And so I was in the slightly odd position of having a publishing contract before an agent, which is not the right. usual way these things happen, mm-hmm. but it was a very unique circumstance. Um, and I subsequently uh, was approached by agents after this happened. Uh, I now have one at AM Heath who I'm very um, happy with, and he's um, guiding me patiently forward on the road to the next novel. Right. And one thing before we stop talking about rights, uh, you also have a quote on the cover from Philip Pullman. Yeah. Which is, again, quite a coup. Basically the best thing that's ever happened to me. Um, Philip Pullman says, Terrific, a story that's intriguing, puzzling, and entirely gripping. Um, yeah, uh, I'm, I, I absolutely love Philip Pullman. I think he is one of the finest storytellers, writers in general, thinkers that we have or mm-hmm. have had. Putting a book together um, is a little bit like you know that thing about making sausages like you don't really want to see how it's done in some ways and um, what I'm not sure people realise is the kind of horse trading process of going about getting quotes for your cover it's really important you know you really really want the reader to go oh my god so and so like that Mm -hmm. wow I'm going to like that Um, so essentially you and I think this is true of all books at any kind of publisher um, you send it. You send it out to people you'd like to to do a blurb, and you say, "Hey, do you think you might have time to read this and to tell so, me what so you think?" So you of approached it? Philip Pullman yourself. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I did. My publishers also approached um, some people, like Sophie Hanna, for example, who uh-huh. also who also very kindly did a blurb, and Fiona Shaw. Um, but yeah, I wrote to Philip Pullman and said, "Hi." Um, I had met him. I had met him once or twice. I, I had written critically on his work when I was doing my undergrad right. degree, so I had I had met him, um, but I had no idea he'd remember me. And I said, "Hello, I've written a novel. Would you like to maybe read it?" And he said, uh, I'll, "I'll do my best, mm-hmm. but you must appreciate lots of people ask me to yes. do this." And I said, "Of course, I do. I appreciate that." And then he got back to me um, unexpectedly quickly and said some absolutely wonderful things and um, this was the thing that we chose to pull out of that email of wonderful things to put on the front cover. Right, it's quite brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I wish I could be modest here. As I say, it is the best thing that's ever happened to me, so I can't. I can't. <laughs> it's strategically very, very sensible to have a relatively short book. I mean, I read it in a day. Cool. Um, so, yeah, he obviously uh, couldn't put it down. Do keep an eye out for the second part of my interview with Sophie, in which she talks about her upcoming novel, Point No Point. You can follow Sophie on Twitter at smcolombo, that's C-O-U-L-O-M-B-E-A-U. Follow me, Thomas Oleron Evans, at Mathistopheles, and The Little Written Podcast at Little Written. More links relevant for this episode can be found at www.littlewritten.co.uk.